Good morning. We have reached, I believe, session 11. And if I say that wrong, it messes up the whole series of things. So 11, I will say. I believe that's right. I hope so. Uh, And we are really in our second week of the canon. The first week we were speaking about the theology of consecration and real presence before we got down into the sort of words of the canon. Uh, which, are, which is the prayer of consecration in any liturgy, is called the canon. And we uh, today are really on something of a part two of the canon. Words of institution, epiclesis, and oblation. If you wanted to find where these were and have your thumb ready in that page, this would be pages 80 and 81 of the 1920 American Book of Common Prayer. That's what we'll be tackling today, just the first uh, two-thirds of that. Words of institution, epiclesis, and oblation. Before we get there, we shall pray. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who has committed to thy holy church the care and nurture of thy people, enlighten with thy wisdom those who teach and those who learn that rejoicing in the knowledge of thy truth, they may worship thee and serve thee from generation to generation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, so we're beginning here with a question of rubrics. Of course, everyone knows, or you should know, that a rubric is something that was originally printed in red. Uh, I was mistakenly... Oh, does it not on? Let's see. It looks to be on, has a little blue light. Yep, okay. So rubrics, uh, when you've got a nice book of common prayer, is printed in two colors of ink, and the red little italicized words, instructions for how the service is to go, for what the minister is to do, for what the parishioners are to do, for who shall say this or may say that. That's all printed in red or at least in italics as a rubric. But a rubric uh, is not just a little uh, nitpicky, can be, not just a little nitpicky element of the liturgy. Oftentimes the rubric reveals the theology of the church about something in particular. And it does in this case... And so that's what we're going to talk a little bit about uh, before we get down, down into the words. And from the Book of Common Prayer, page 83, which is the next page, of course, or a next page, these words are said which make the mind think. If the consecrated bread or wine be spent, in other words, all distributed, before all have communicated, the priest is to consecrate more according to the form before prescribed, beginning at all glory be to the almighty God, that's the paragraph including the words of institution, and ending with these words, partaker of his most blessed body and blood. And if you are on page 80 to 81, you'll see that that includes the entirety of page 80, which includes the words of institution the oblation, and the invocation. Now, the invocation is also uh, known as the epiclesis. Invocation, I guess you would say it was Latin. Epiclesis is Greek. Ending with most blessed body and blood. So what can you discern from the fact, the rubric, 
that says, if you run out of sacrament as you're administrating it, you are to consecrate more, and you are to go from this word to that word. What does that help you discern about those words and not some other words? Those words are essential to the consecration. You can't leave those out. Um, What do you do if you don't have enough? If the sacrament is spent before all are communicated, repeat the form, including the words of institution, oblation, and invocation, or apoclesis. What a church does, and this is uh, something to watch closely if you're a rubrically-minded person, what a church does when the sacrament runs out, as well as what a church does with sacrament that remains oftentimes reveals the sacramental beliefs of the church. Now, I went, this is not uh, uh, to besmirch the seminary that I went to, it's their theology. When I was at Erskine Theological Seminary, they would have a communion service for the students sometimes in chapel, and when this service was done, they would take what we would call the host, but it was like the loaf of bread, and put it in the break room to be cut into sandwiches or used as snack food, okay? For us, that would be an utter and complete total abomination and sacrilege, and priests, if they had any left, would be pulling their hair out. Um, But in the Presbyterian theology of the sacraments, it only retains the character of a sacrament for its particular use, When that use is done, it returns to bread. That's their theology. That is not our theology, and you can tell by what happens in a church service at that point. You may have just been joyfully receiving the body and blood of Christ and never paid attention to this stuff. But anyway, those rubrics and what a church does reveals what uh, what a church believes. If you have too much... A typical Catholic church will do one of two things. Catholic, that meaning uh, the small Catholic, the ancient church, would either consume everything so that there was nothing left or reserve it in a tabernacle or an ombre or prepare it to be taken to the sick after the service who are homebound or something like that. Never poured out and never dumped in the trash or anything like that, because it remains the body and blood of Christ, simply because Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, and he never told us when it then wasn't his body and his blood. He never said. The only thing you can discern from that in our theology is it remains his body and blood. He said it was, so we treat it that way. But what if you have too much, same question, if uh, this is BCP 84, if And if any of the consecrated bread and wine remain after the communion, it shall not be carried out of the church, but the minister and other communicants shall immediately after the blessing reverently eat and drink the same. I almost promise you you've never seen that happen. So anyone says that we're a straight 28 prayer book church, no, you're not. <laughs> okay, I've never been... I've been in uh, the continuing Anglican church since 2005. I've never seen this done. However, it is a rubric in the prayer book, which means to, to, uh, to pay attention to the theology of the church, which is when it's consecrated, it's consecrated, that's it. It will always be consecrated, and it's meant for consumption, and it's possible to reserve it. 
most churches, I would say all churches that I've been to have a way of reserving the sacrament. Um, Historically, clergy were sometimes arrested for, this is back when church and government were much more entwined. A priest could be arrested for handling these issues improperly. And a a clergyman, first of all, uh, if you want to know what not to do, let's say all of the, the, the sacrament is spent you don't just go back to the sacristy and get some more wafers and come out and start distributing them. Niet, niet Soviet. <laughs> no way. You, you'll be in so much trouble. And in fact, uh, in my studies, I could not find it again, but I, I found it in seminary. There was a fellow who was actually arrested and imprisoned for having done that. Um, then there was a separation of church and government, and that's not going to happen anymore. But you will get in trouble with your bishop, that's for sure, if you were to find out. But today, I just, as I was trying to find it again, I found that there was a man arrested in Jensen Beach, Florida, last year, last November, uh, according to U.S. News, who was arrested for trying to come to the altar rail at a Roman Catholic church, receive the sacrament, and not consume it, but leave with it. And the priest pointed at him and insisted that he consume it, and he insisted that he wouldn't consume it, and he was actually not a Christian at all, but wanted to take it back for some sort of uh, a talisman or, a, or a, some sort of sacrilege. He was going to do in a ceremony at home with his friends. And he was cornered by the parishioners of the church who basically prevented him from leaving the building. But he was uh, arrested for disturbing a, a religious service and for theft. Pretty cool. I mean, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's kind of cool. Anyway, uh, no, you're not supposed to leave the church and put the sacrament in your pocket. The sacrament is ordained by Christ's ordinance to be received. That's something to keep in mind when you read the articles of religion, which seem to address this about the idea of reservation, reserving. We have a tabernacle and we have before that, we had an ombre, places to reserve the sacrament. Question of Article 28. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper was not, but this is from the 17th, 16th century. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper was not by Christ's ordinance reserved, that is to address the tabernacle, carried about, which is to address the practice of Corpus Christi, where there is a processional that goes around with the sacrament, lifted up, that is, elevation, or worshipped, which is, I would say, a service that's called benediction. And so it seems as if what Article 28 is saying is these things need to stop. And we go, gasp, oh no, our church does reservation, we do elevation, and many of our churches do Corpus Christi and benediction, none of which am I offended by. We have to ask ourselves then, what did Christ ordain the sacrament for? To be received, okay? It is meant to be the body and blood of Christ, to be received by those who are his followers for their own spiritual nourishment, that he may dwell in them and they may dwell in him. What do the words actually say? This is a study in Anglican ambiguity. If you... Bring your own uh, uh, preconceived notions to the words. You'll say, oh, I know what that means. But you read the actual words, and it doesn't say what you think it says. 
what this actually says is the sacrament of the Lord's Supper was not by Christ's ordinance, not by Christ's ordinance. He didn't command that it be that this, 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 this may be done, which, which you can discern means it's not necessary and it's not to be done if the faithful are not being communicated. Because in the context of the time, people were not receiving communion, but they were watching it being elevated. They were attending Corpus Christi and doing a procession. They were looking at it being reserved and they were going to benediction and worshiping this uh, presence of Christ sacrament, but never receiving it. Perhaps at most once a year when it was mandated for them. So what happens at the Reformation is the attempt is to get away from this idea of just staring at the sacrament. You're not supposed to stare at it. But if you are receiving it at, according to Christ's ordinance, then the rest of it, actually the offense of it, is no longer there. It sort of dissolves. In context, this article actually doesn't say much to us anymore. It seems to say something, but the only time this article, I would say, really has teeth is if your priest is not administering the sacrament to you. He's withholding it from all of you, but he wants you to come to Corpus Christi so you can watch it process around the church and go back in the tabernacle. Now you've got a problem. Now you call your bishop and say, this priest is crazy. He's lost his mind. Article 28, we're supposed to receive this. That's Christ's ordinance. Anyway, maybe that thought never crossed your mind. Has now, and there's your answers in case somebody ever asks that to you. But, but I, I, in Anglican circles, the articles play a big role. And, and there is a, a contextual and interpretational element to those articles. Uh, full, perfect, and sufficient. Let's read these words. All glory be to the Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, for that thou of thy tender mercy didst give thine only Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption, who made there by his one oblation of himself, once offered, then, a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, which is an offering, and satisfaction, which is obvious, for the sins of the whole world, done, finished in the past, completed, and did institute and in his holy gospel command us to continue a perpetual memory of that his precious death and sacrifice until his coming again. There is something for which there was a great advent for centuries and centuries and centuries. And then it happened. And we were commanded from then on by his ordinance and his institution. He commanded us to continue, which is what we're doing, uh, a perpetual memory of that, his precious death and sacrifice until his coming again. By the way, you see this image. Um, for those who are not so sure about a, a, a crucifix and not so sure about using the word sacrifice uh, in the liturgy or at the altar, please be aware that if there is a confusion, it is an ancient confusion and not one of ours today. That is the idea that Christ is being re-sacrificed on the altar every, at every Mass. That is not the theology of the Church. In fact... The theology of the church stated quite explicitly, and I just read it to you once, 
one oblation of himself once offered, one full, perfect, sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world, and in a very real sense, past tense. However, this is like what I call the cannonball splash of history. Okay, so if history is a timeline, and it's kind of like a, uh, a still pool of water, this incarnation, life, death, resurrection of Christ is like the cannonball splash of history that sends shockwaves all the way, all the way back to the beginning, fulfilling all of the Old Testament temple sacrifices, and all the way out into the future to the end of time being sufficient for all. There's one cannonball splash of history. What are we doing when we come to this altar, to this church on a Sunday? We're participating in that one full perfect sacrifice. There is an element of it that's remembering it, but that's a part of it. That's just a part of it. There's more. And this is kind of out of, out of sync with what I'm saying, but some people will say, you can't have the sacrament of the Eucharist without a sermon. And you have to preach Christ crucified because that's what St. Paul said. For the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And later, for I determined to know nothing among any of you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's St. Paul's word to the Corinthians. The canon is preaching Christ crucified nonstop. If, not that I ever would, but if I preached a sermon series on how to get out of debt in 40 days, but then I did the liturgy and I said, uh, thine only son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption, who made thereby his one oblation of himself once offered a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. That is preaching Christ crucified. Every once in a while you'll go to a Eucharist where there isn't a sermon, and you say, where is my sermon? The sermon is in the liturgy. It's right there. We're not avoiding it. Uh, I will never preach on how to get out of debt. That's your problem. But <laughs> or how to get along with your boss or something like that. Um, but anyhow, the words of institution. And here we have a picture of... Golgotha, the church that has been built around uh, the Holy Church of the Sepulchre in Jerusalem. For in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. You notice there's a little A there in our prayer book. And when he had given thanks, by the way, this is all from 1 Corinthians, straight quote. Uh, And Sorry. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of this, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for you and for many for the remission of sins. Do this, as oft as ye shall drink it, in remembrance of me." If I was to preach a sermon, which I might here in just a second, something I would say perhaps for our own spiritual lives, at least equally as compelling as this is my body and this is my blood and do this in remembrance of me as a commandment is the very first line that we read over very quickly. For in the night in which he was betrayed. Okay, the night in which you are betrayed you are hot, ripping mad, ready to kill. And you are, the sword is in the fire. 
to make damage happen to the person who betrayed you. Uh, you have prepared your speech for what you'll say if you ever meet that person again. I tell you what, um, okay, that you know what betrayal feels like. A deep wound. The person you were so close with for so long betrayed you. And the last thing on your mind is giving something to that person. But not Christ. The very night in which he was betrayed and not after he cooled down. The night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and said, this is my body broken for you. The night in which he was betrayed. I think that's absolutely astounding. And if, you're, if you feel like you're fully converted and your heart is, is, is uh, the holiest that mankind has ever known, test it with that one. <laughs> I think that's pretty, that's pretty incredible. But he does say, do this. And he does say in Translated into English, remembrance of me. And the word there is anamnesis. I don't know if you've ever heard that word before. Of course, that is a Greek word, anamnesis, remembrance. And if he said it in Aramaic and originally, I can't tell you what that word is. But the word we have in the Greek New Testament is the word anamnesis. And I'm afraid to tell you, there really isn't an English word that translates one for one, if you've ever been, been involved in language, you know that there isn't always a one for one word. There's a word that's close, serviceable. The old stories about snow, right? The Inuit have however many words for snow, we have snow. Okay, so when they have their word for snow, every time it's translated to English, we translate it snow. But to them, it's like, which one? Uh, we can't do that. We don't do that in our language. Anamnesis cannot really be translated perfectly, and so we give it remembrance. And to us, that means recall, think back. And even the Greek word's not that great. Uh, ana, back, mnesis, uh, to think. Uh, also translated as mind. If you ever think about uh, trying to remember, study for your test. So you create a mnemonic or uh, something like that. There's a whole bunch of words uh, related to that same Greek root. We don't have an English word that really means what anamnesis means to Jesus and the disciples in the first century. How do we know that, that uh, to Jesus and the disciples in the first century this meant something different? Because of the context in which Jesus says it. Uh, he says it in the midst of what is, for, by most accounts, a Passover meal. And in the Passover meal, there is remembered the Exodus. And, and in just a moment here, we're going to hear it. Well, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. When the Exodus is recalled, these are the words of the Haggadah, the Passover liturgy. We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. And the Lord our God took us out from there with a strong hand, with an outstretched arm. No, he didn't. Your ancestors, like long ago, they were slaves to pharaohs in Egypt. But no, the liturgy is we were slaves in Egypt. You see how there's something different about remembering from our way of remembering is, I remember going to Coney Island when I was eight and it was great. 
I remember the hot dogs there. They had sort of a, I don't know. I've never been there. <laughs> uh, they had just a very special, Nathan's hot dogs. They were just very special. You're remembering that, okay? This is something a little different. This is a participation in. We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord our God took us out of there. And in that same context, in that same strain, Jesus says, uh, this is my body, this is my blood. Do this always, perpetually, in remembrance, in anamnesis of me. That's not the same as remembering, but we don't have a word for that. It's like snow. So <laughs> what is the word? There are, these are the words of the Passover, the same sense in which Jesus takes the cup and says, this is my body, this is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. I'm going to return to the previous slide if we have time. It was a, it's a statement that I found on Bishop Chad's uh, blog. Uh, 1971, the Anglicans and the Romans were working together, Roman Catholics were working together, and uh, developed a, a statement about the Eucharist and the sense in which remembrance is not the same as remembering. But they were pointing to, essentially, the Passover liturgy, the sense in which uh, participation is more a part of, of uh, what's going on there. Any questions so far before we get to another rubrical thing? Any questions about what we got through? Words of institution, anamnesis? No? Okay, so if we get to that portion, we'll, we'll come back. But you may also notice as you're going through your Book of Common Prayer that the rubrics, which are printed in black... What are those called? Blackics? I don't know. <laughs> uh, rubrics printed in black. Uh, for the passage that we've just read, which is uh, straight out of the liturgy and actually from 1 Corinthians, the rubrics say, here the priest is to take the patent into his hands, and here he is to break the bread, which is another word for that is called fraction. The priest is to do the fraction and here he is to lay his hand on all the bread. And here he is to take the cup into his hands. And here he is to lay his hand upon every vessel in which there is any wine to be consecrated. And you may, if you can see through my back, have noticed that not all of those rubrics are being followed and not being followed at, at those specific times. And you may say, you're doing it wrong which if we were, as I displayed before, if we were a straight prayer book down the line, 1928 church, which basically doesn't exist, that would be true. Much of what we do uh, in our church, and I would say really since the 19th century and the Oxford movement, has to do a lot with the, well, I should say earlier in the 20th century, has to do with rubrics found in the missals as well. Now, that what you see up on the altar is called a missal. It's a big, chunky thing. You notice it's much bigger than your prayer book because there's a lot more things to do in it, a lot more rubrics, a lot more ways to hold a service, uh, different prayers, and it's really up to the training of the priest. Uh, the prayer book rubrics and the missal rubrics are different. Both are canonically permitted in the Anglican province of America and all the other continuing churches. For clergy, it depends on how you're trained and who trained you. But... Really, we're not talking about the matter. 
We're not talking about the intent, which is all the same. We're not talking about the minister, which is legit. And we're not talking about the subject, which is you. Uh, We're talking about the form. But you may also notice that there's some other things that happened during this period that are also not prescribed and may uh, lead to some question. And perhaps, first of all, and some consternation to our acolytes, bells, okay? The whacking of the bell with the mallet, or if you have a different kind, you you turn your wrist and it goes cha-ching, cha-ching. What about the bells that take place? We get excited sometimes in our liturgy about smells and bells, and indeed, right here, there are some things that happen that, first of all, for us, have to do with bells, but if we had a bigger church and we had a place for the censer to go out and come back in without distracting the whole service, this is another portion at which the incense would be used. Right here at the words of institution, the uh, censer, if a parish wishes it, Incense is to be used at the processional, the gospel reading, and the consecration. So at the words of institution, the censer is kneeling on the altar, kneeling near the altar, and he senses as the uh, sacrament goes up, goes down, comes back uh, to the altar. Um, That is a possibility. Some would call that a high mass. Um, We don't have a way to get in and out of this building, and so we only uh, in sense of that one portion. But what you will hear, hear is bells. And you may ask yourself, if uh, there's no bells, is it still legit? It absolutely is. <laughs> uh, 13th century Bishop of Paris was asked, when you consecrate the host, which comes first, is the chalice consecrated too? In other words, if you consecrated the host and then had a heart attack and fell over, and we needed to administer the sacrament, would the chalice be consecrated? And the answer was no. And so bells were rung to distinguish one moment from the other. So the host was, was consecrated and bells were rung to, to symbolize or to acknowledge consecration was happening. And then the chalice would be consecrated and, and the bells would be rung there. You can see how the bells don't have any essential role, but they have come to mean a lot. Uh, if you couldn't be at church and you were out in the, the English hamlet somewhere, sometimes they would ring the church bell at that moment. So you're out at the blacksmith, blacksmithing, and you're bonking the sword, your plowshares into swords, or swords into plowshares, depending on the era. And the church bell rings at 10.32. And you know that can't mean that a church service is starting. It means the consecration has just happened which means something has just changed in our world today, in our hamlet. Something's just changed in our town. Uh, And the Lord has been made present in a special and sacramental way just now. So the bells actually came to mean a lot more to people. Also, if you've ever been drifting off in a service and your eyes have been starting to get like halfway down and then three quarters of the way down, and then someone takes that mallet and goes, Bong! <laughs> you wake up. Same purpose for your alarm clock in the morning. Wake up. Time to get up. Stuff's happening. You know, important things are happening in the world. Wake up. Wake up. The bell does the exact same thing. It's for attention deficit uh, people in the church who forgot where they were and what was going on. They were distracted, and the bell rings, and you're focused again. It does a really good job. Most churches don't have what we have, which I would call a gong. 
Most churches have those three bells that we start the service with, and it goes cha-ching. It sounds like an old-timey telephone. Cha-ching, cha-ching. There's another tradition uh, called a chime, which is like, like you know, dung, 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 uh, uh, chimes with hammers. There's another one that can be similar. Anyway, smells and bells are not essential, but they do tend to signify a church is growing in its liturgical uh, freedom. <clears throat> we've got the personnel, we've got the equipment, why not we do it? But the liturgy goes on with what we call the oblation, Wherefore, which is an offering. Wherefore, O Lord and Heavenly Father, according to the institution of thy dearly beloved Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, we thy humble servants do celebrate and make here before thy divine majesty with these thy holy gifts which we now offer unto thee. That's the oblation. The memorial thy son hath commanded us to make, having in remembrance his blessed passion and precious death, his mighty resurrection and glorious ascension, rendering unto thee most hearty thanks for the innumerable benefits procured unto us by the same. Sacramentally speaking, there's nothing essential, I would say, happening at, this, at these moments potentially, but this is sort of uh, uh, another sort of culminating point where we offer... We're about to offer in the people's oblation, which comes next, ourselves, our souls, and our bodies. Um, That comes just after the epiclesis. But this portion is called the oblation. And I'm going to skip right on from this because it's not as essential as the other two. If there are no questions, I'm going to push this button. Okay. Now the invocation or the epiclesis. uh, They really mean the same thing in Latin and in Greek. Vocation would be to call, to invoke, would be to, to call into or even call upon. Uh, epiclesis, klesis is Greek for call, uh, and epi is upon, call down upon. Okay? Uh, at the invocation or the epiclesis, the Holy Spirit is called upon for these elements on the altar. This is more uh, considered to be the essential element of the consecration in the Eastern Church. But we say, And we most humbly beseech thee, O merciful Father, to hear us, and of thy almighty goodness vouchsafe to bless and sanctify with thy word and Holy Spirit these thy gifts and creatures of bread and wine, that we receiving them according to thy Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ's holy institution, in remembrance of his death and passion, may be partakers of his most blessed body and blood. Those words, bless and sanctify with thy word and Holy Spirit, is what we would call the invocation. You remember a couple weeks ago I pointed out that the 1928 American, well, the, the, the American Book of Common Prayer itself, along with the Scottish 18th century, is special because it includes both the words of institution and the epiclesis, uh, sort of bridging the West and the East and tying them together into one liturgy so that uh, neither East nor West should have a problem with a liturgy like that. Any questions or thoughts about that? We're almost done, so I may go back to the, the bonus material earlier. But uh, if you are interested in that, that uh, epiclesis, you may also be interested, or if you're interested in the Eastern Orthodox Church, 
You may also be interested to know that when the Russians came to North America, they came through Alaska, a very weird circumstance where the Eastern Church came from the West and the Western Church met them from the East. Weird, right? <laughs> Anyhow, uh, so the Russians came down and, and St. Tikhon, who's trying, struggling to have a, uh, 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 a, a liturgical service in English that he could observe at his Orthodox Church. Everything's in Russian or, or Greek or, or, uh, or uh, Syriac or something like that, but Russian for him. He finds the 1928 Book of Common Prayer and finds that the liturgy is just fine. And he has to tweak just a couple of things in order to make it more Eastern, more Eastern Orthodox. And so what he does is he changes the part we just read, the epiclesis. How does he change it? He doesn't change the substance. He basically beefs it up to make it more obvious what's happening at this moment. And here are the words of the liturgy of St. Tikhon, which is actually in the Missal on the Altar, if I, were, if I was to use it. And we most humbly beseech thee, O merciful Father, to hear us. Sound familiar? And of thy almighty goodness vouchsafe to send down thy Holy Ghost upon these thy gifts and creatures of bread and wine, that they may be changed into the body and blood of thy most dearly beloved Son. That we receiving them, that's the party changed. That's it. And he also, when it came time to prayers for the departed, uh, there was a much more beefed up section there. But in terms of the canon, there you have it. Uh, that is the element that was changed. And it's not changed very much. Uh, and that was considered pleasing to the Orthodox Church um, at that time. I'm sure that now that, you, now that the Liturgy of St. Chrysostom and, and others have been translated to English, they just go back to those. But... But the fact is, the Liturgy of St. Tikhon exists in our prayer books. So that's just an interesting tidbit about, our, about our, uh, our, the essential elements of our canon here. Any other questions before I go back to the bonus material? Yes, please. Yep. Um, why is the bell rung at um, until his coming again? Until his coming again. The only answer I can possibly give you is get ready. It's about to happen, right? Like, you know, uh, if someone wakes you up immediately and says, uh, asks you a question, you might be a little groggy. This is my answer. Someone listening to this may say, you fool. You don't know the answer. Okay, so uh, my experience is if you're drifting off and that first bell goes, suddenly I'm paying attention again. And then comes... uh, uh, the consecration, at least in the Western view, comes in the... Actually, look back in the liturgy of St. Tikhon, and they have bells rung there, too, in the rubrics. But I don't think there's, there's nothing sacramentally significant about the words until his coming again. Bing. It's just sort of uh, the same old alarm clock thing. Wake up. Yeah. Any other thoughts or questions? Okay, I pulled this from Bishop Chad's uh, blog in which he uh, posted a portion of an Anglican-Roman Catholic agreement from 1971 about this particular portion of the liturgy and the nature of the Eucharist itself, where together it was said, Christ's redeeming death and resurrection took place once 
and for all in history. Christ's death on the cross, the culmination of his whole life of obedience, was the one perfect and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the world. There can be no repetition or addition of a repetition of or addition to what was then accomplished once for all by Christ. Any attempt to express a nexus between the sacrifice of Christ and the Eucharist must not obscure this fundamental fact of the Christian faith. Okay, so if anyone ever heard that the Roman Catholics really believe that they're having a bloody sacrifice on the altar and they're re-sacrificing Christ every single time, you have heard a, uh, a bit of gossip. <laughs> it is not true. Okay? Any attempt to express a nexus between the sacrifice of Christ and the Eucharist must not obscure. That's, a, that's not to say you can't use the word sacrifice. But if you're going to use the word sacrifice, it cannot obscure the fundamental fact that the, that the sacrifice was once for all. Yet God has given, though it was once for all, God has given the Eucharist to his church as a means through which the atoning work of Christ on the cross is proclaimed and made effective in the life of the church. And effective is not remembering. Effective is like medicine that you took today is having effect today. It has a real effect. The notion of memorial as understood in the Passover celebration at the time of Christ, i.e., the making effective in the present of an event in the past, has opened the way to a clearer understanding of the relationship between Christ's sacrifice once and for all and the Eucharist every single Sunday, every time we celebrate it. How is that possible? How is a bad question. Does it happen is a better question. The Eucharist memorial is no mere calling to mind. I remember I went roller skating. Not that. The Eucharist memo- Eucharistic memorial is no mere calling to mind of a past event or of its significance, but the church's effectual proclamation of, Christ, of God's mighty acts. Christ instituted the Eucharist as a memorial, anamnesis, of the totality of God's reconciling action in him. That totality includes what happens about 25, 45 minutes from now and what happened about an hour ago. Christ instituted the Eucharist as a memorial. That's not to say there isn't some remembering element, but as a memorial of the totality of God's reconciling action in him. In the Eucharistic prayer, the church continues to make a perpetual memorial of Christ's death and his members united with God and one another, give thanks for all his mercies, entreat the benefits of his passion on behalf of the whole church, participate in these benefits, and enter into the movement of his self-offering. Participate in that self-offering and enter into it. That's where we're going the next time uh, we gather, because if you look on page 80 and 81, we've gotten to the end then of the invocation. But this last section on page page 81 says, And here we offer and present unto thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls and bodies, to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice unto thee. That's how we participate in and enter into the movement of his self-offering, by offering ourselves. It's a union. Our offering is pathetic. 
Not even close. Not even halfway there. Not even a quarter of the way there. But when united with his full, perfect, and sufficient offering, it's acceptable. So that's a miracle. And that's what we'll talk about uh, next time when we return. However, next Sunday is Christmas. No, right? Yeah. No, next Sunday is... Next Sunday is Nine Lessons and Carols. We'll be greening the church instead of Sunday school, hanging wreaths, putting up trees, and all that kind of stuff. The week after that is Christmas. We will not have Sunday school then. We'll have one service at 11 o'clock. The week after that is circumcision, better known as New Year's Day. Um, And we will have morning prayer on that day. So we're not going to get to hear the thrilling conclusion of this portion until the second week of January. So uh, put that on hold. And I think we're done for today unless there's any other comments. Okay. Thank you.